0: One week into the shutdown and millions of us are dealing with the effects of isolation for the first time. But one British doctor was better prepared than most of us.
1: Paradoxically, you know, everyone always says, were you really lonely in Antarctica? And it was kind of the opposite.
0: After being alone for so long, will we ever be the same?
1: It can actually be quite liberating and it can really give you a chance to think about what it is you're you're doing in your life.
0: This is Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, lessons in isolation from an astronaut training camp in Antarctica.
1: I remember really vividly being in the Twin Otter Plane, which is a sort of small polar plane. You know, it's the classic plane that you see on any polar movies with the skis.
0: Landing in Antarctica isn't quite like landing anywhere else.
1: we have been flying for about five hours and i had literally seen nothing. Suddenly the plane starts to go down and I still see nothing.
0: Beth Healy is an A&E doctor, and a few years ago, she was stationed in one of the more unusual postings for any medic.
1: Where's the airport? Why are we stopping here? And I guess that's the thing about Concordia. It is just so remote. It was only in the last few seconds that we were coming onto the snowy runway that I caught a glimpse of the station. I just remember the the door being pulled wide open and suddenly all these people with snow all over their beards. Right
0: now, we're all wondering what living in isolation for weeks, possibly months, will actually be like. Beth was in the Antarctic to answer that very question.
1: I was working as a research doctor and my main role there was to research the effects of the isolation and the overwinter on the overwintering crew and to really look at the sort of psychological and physiological challenges that they had. And from this, inform us about some of the challenges that future astronauts might have on long-duration spaceflight missions.
0: So you were actually working for the European Space Agency and this was with an eye to how people would manage in semi-isolation out in space. Absolutely, yeah. For nearly a year, Beth was stationed at the Concordia Research Station, known as White Mars, where Antarctica is used as training for a much bigger mission.
1: The European Space Agency, they use lots of different what we call spaceflight analogues, and those are really just any environment which in some way replicates space. We have underwater platforms which replicate the weightlessness that you have in space. And then you have Concordia where you're sort of truly isolated and seeing the effects of that on on the crew there. The conditions are so extreme that in many ways they replicate the kind of temperatures that we see on Mars. If we're able to find some kind of bacteria that are able to survive at Concordia, it might help inform us about the bacteria that might be able to survive on different planets. Have you ever considered going into space yourself? I would love to go to space. And that really came from the experience that I had in Antarctica. Growing up in Herefordshire, I suppose it wasn't really on my radar. But now it's certainly something I'd love to do. And just mentally, how do you prepare
0: to go into isolation in Antarctica?
1: I think the main part of my um, sort of mental preparation was actually when I was already there in a way I went down during the Antarctic summer um, so I had a few weeks down there before we went into sort of the isolation phase which was the winter time because during the summer Antarctica is actually quite an active um, sort of busy place relatively so not quite London but <laughs> But at that point as well, I still had time to sort of leave the mission if if I'd wanted to. And also sort of just just help me prepare by taking baby steps, you know, not going straight into Antarctica in isolation, but going into sort of this this halfway house. And I guess in some ways that's been similar to sort of the isolation that we've been experiencing with the recent COVID outbreak. Because, you know, initially we had that opportunity where we can still go outside, but the advice was to stay at home before actually going into a governmental lockdown as well. And I, and I think that's actually quite useful to have that little period where you can adapt to your new environment before going straight into it. Did you know how long you were going to Antarctica for? I had a general idea. So I was actually sort of in my head, I thought it was going to be more like 10 months. It ended up being 14. Some people, like, like my granddad, you know, I didn't know if I would be getting to say hello again when I, when I came back. So it, it was quite an emotional period to, to say those goodbyes. How did that feel? Yeah, it was, it was a funny feeling. But my granddad's super into space and he's really excited about my mission going down to Antarctica. So, so I think that, that helped me certainly. Unfortunately, he's still a (laughs) sea is still about but you know you do have to ask those questions when you do go to Antarctica for such a long period of time What's Concordia
0: like? What was your new
1: home like? The first thing that really struck me was just how flat it was you know it's flat in every direction It wasn't what I had expected I guess in in my head but it was still beautiful as well
0: If you were to walk out and, and look around you what would you be looking at?
1: When it's the long polar night, we have a hundred and five days without any sunshine. You could walk out at any time of the day, and it really would be just like nighttime, and you'd see the Milky Way really, really clearly right above your head. Sometimes you could see planets, so you could see Mars sort of at the horizon. You can see the curvature of the earth and then in between the summer and winter you get this sort of beautiful mauve, orangey horizon and during the wintertime you'd have the southern lights. I'd always imagine them just to be green but you also have these sort of pinky-purple night skies. It sounds beautiful. It was an amazing environment to get the opportunity to live in. Was there any other sign of life? No, so at Concordia we don't have any life that survives outside, which, is, which was kind of a disappointment, I faced when I went there. Because, you know, all the coastal stations, you have all the penguin colonies and, and you have that aspect of sort of Antarctic life. But no, at Concordia it's, it's just the crew.
0: Tell me about that. Tell me about the crew. <laughs> what were they like at the start of the trip and then how did that change?
1: So the beginning, yeah, it's very much just like you know, fresh as week. Everyone's making an effort. Everyone's being super friendly. You can't imagine ever running into any trouble with anybody, to be honest. <laughs> and you're all very positive. <laughs> we were actually super lucky because we had an Italian chef overwintering with us. So I don't think I complained too much about the <laughs> about the food. And then gradually, you know, you realise that you're just like any other crew that have been to Antarctica, and there's going to be some people that you get on with more than others. It would be unusual to spend all your time hanging out with 13 people. So you do naturally form smaller subgroups. The scientists were up in the laboratory a lot more. The technical team was in the power station together. And also the nationalities as well within the station because people are tired. And so it does um, become a little bit easier as well to speak your native language. Sometimes you did feel a little bit like the odd one, you know, being the only Brit on the station. Tell me a bit about the base. What was it like? We all had our own bedroom, and that was very much considered our private space. And that was really important to have that space away from people as well, because paradoxically, you know, everyone always says were you really lonely in Antarctica? And it was kind of the opposite. You couldn't really get away from anybody. Everyone always knew your news and what you were up to. Um, And that could feel quite claustrophobic. So I think having those bedrooms and having that little hideaway spot was really very useful.
0: That's really interesting, actually. I think a lot of people in isolation are probably finding that. You start off thinking isolation is going to be very lonely, and then actually it's a lack of private space, probably.
1: Definitely. And I think that's something really to consider about um, our current isolation is to really think about how you can have a little bit of space for yourself. Even just having like the garden shed, you know, having that little bit of space can can really help um, in terms of relationships within the crew and, and the dynamics within your small group. So
0: there you are with 13 people about to embark on an extensive time in isolation. Tell me about the dynamics between the group. How did that change over time?
1: Initially, we would spend a lot more time doing group tasks, whether it was as simple as, you know, preparing for midwinter or if it was cleaning the base together. It was actually really good for morale. And that would be something that I really would suggest is to try and have those things that you're, you're planning as, as a group to do. Even within like a family group, if you're isolating together, maybe think about doing sort of a special meal or something on the Saturday night. Or if you're isolating as a couple, having a date night to look forward to and sort of bring you together. Because it's actually very easy to be in isolation with another person, with a few people in the house and not actually see them. And that can be quite isolating. So physically you can be together, but actually, you know, spending a bit of either family time or, or with whoever it is is really, really important for the dynamics of your group and to stop you from feeling lonely during that period as well.
0: And what was your job like? I mean, what was an average day like? What were you expected to do?
1: So it's all quite varied in terms of what a week would look like. We were taking lots of different samples, for example, blood samples, hair samples, saliva samples. And then also recording diaries. And what were you finding? How were people affected by isolation? So with any Antarctic overwinter, it's well recognized that it's actually the third quarter where people find the most difficulties. And that's because, you know, at the beginning of the expedition, you're really excited, you know, you feel really motivated. Um, It's a little bit like making sort of New Year's resolutions. There's all these things that you want to do when you go down there. And so you feel really motivated initially. But then as the time goes on, you sort of start to lose that a little bit. You get to midwinter, so that's a, a classic celebration in Antarctica. It's a little bit like having Christmas. But then once that's over, you suddenly realise that you've been there for a very long time but it's still a very long time until you're likely to be going home and people get a little bit demotivated at that point and I think that's really where people start to struggle. You do become a little bit ineffective. What we classically um, see is people go into a psychological hibernation during this third quarter period. All I wanted to do was curl up on the sofa and watch Downton Abbey, to be honest, (laughs) for for the whole of that third quarter. And I think that reflected the mood of most people on the station. You also get to know the true person, you know, because it's it's easy, you know, at the beginning for everyone to be super friendly and super nice. But when you're living in close proximity like that, you, you do really start to uncover people's true personalities.
0: You have such a rare insight into how people respond to isolation. I mean, of the people in your crew who you were watching and monitoring, how did people respond after a period of weeks and months to the conditions? I mean, psychologically, what sort of effects were you seeing?
1: Some people responded really well, you know. For some people, the hardest thing was going back to normal life, as it were. Really? you shouldn't underestimate the benefits of having a period of isolation really you know life there is much more simple you don't have all of the faff of everything that gets in the way sometimes in in normal life you know you don't have a hundred different washing powders to choose from and you don't have 20 things that you could possibly do that evening you know you just have a few things to do and it can actually be quite liberating and it can really give you a chance to think about what it is you're doing in your life and Astronauts often talk about the overview effect and that opportunity to sort of look back at Earth from space and really sort of reevaluate. And I think although none of us unfortunately are going to go to space during this period of isolation, I think that it really is an exciting opportunity to sort of step back from our day to day lives. And I think some people really thrived in that environment.
0: Did you have that sort of period of introspection or did the crew too, just sort of taking stock of life and where you are and your priorities, is that something that happens a lot when you're in isolation?
1: It definitely did for me and I think something which added to that, particularly in our experience, was actually losing the sun. Wherever you go in the world, it's always there. To lose that was actually a really strange feeling. It did make you feel really very isolated and very cut off. And when it came back, it really did feel like it sort of reconnected me suddenly with life back home and friends and family, because you knew that everyone else would be looking at the same thing. It was a strange sensation to see that sun again. Did it change the way you looked at your life? I think it made me sort of brave enough to kind of step away from the things that I'd been doing before and have a go at doing something else.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Dr. Beth Healy was observing the crew and how they responded. Particular characters and personality traits responded well to isolation and others didn't.
1: So from our training at the beginning, I, you know, you can't but help sort of, you know, evaluate people and think, oh, you know, I think they're going to be really good. I think they're not going to be uh, handle the situation so well. And I think... I think the people that did really well, I don't think it was necessarily um, related to their intrinsic nature as to to whether or not they isolated well. I think it was the people that had some clear motivations for why they were isolating Diana, so why they were going to Antarctica. And if you're really clear and positive about that in your mind, I think it made the whole experience a lot easier. And I think that's really important in our current crisis with COVID as well, because I think if you're able to sort of rationalize in your head quite clearly why you think it's important that we isolate currently. And I think that that was a key factor, really, about why some people find the isolation more challenging than others in many ways the most stressful period was the summer before we overwintered so that period where i was in antarctica but i i hadn't fully committed to the isolation phase you sort of go down there and everyone's got all these like horror stories about oh my goodness what are you what are you thinking because you have to remember that the summer crews are actually crews which keep on coming down sort of year after year you know so they've met all of the overwinterers um, over the years and they all have their stories to tell And they're very happy to tell you them, you know. <laughs> and it sort, of, it sort of scares you. And you're like, oh my goodness, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be as terrible as everyone says? And that's your sort of last chance, really, to get out. So I spent quite a few weeks um, before we overwintered, you know, wondering whether or not this is the right thing to do. I was like, wow, you know, am I going to be all right? And actually when that last plane did leave, it was a relief, you know, I was like, okay, like I'm in this, I'm doing this, I've gone for it. I often look at Mars 500 as another platform that ESA used. It's sort of a mock-up spaceship to simulate a mission to Mars and a crew of six people were locked inside for 500 days. And I think I would have found that mission a lot more difficult given my experience in the summer because, you know, there's always a door that you could walk through and I think I would have probably spent, you know, 499 of the 500 days wondering whether or not I should leave the mission. And I think actually it can be quite relaxing to no longer have that choice and and that was something that I experienced in Antarctica and I guess would be similar to what it's going to be like on long-duration space flight as well, not having that choice to go home.
0: When you have just got heartily sick of it psychologically how do you persuade yourself to keep going for another few months
1: a lot of it was my friends down there you know and sort of crying it all out and then then getting on with it really I mean something I really enjoyed and I spent a lot of my time doing was photography when I was down there and that was a a little opportunity to escape as well and and a reason to go outside as well because you know when it's minus 80 and you're inside in your in your joggers you know it's the the last thing you really want to do (laughs) to go outside so having the photography was a really therapeutic thing for me just going outside and seeing the beautiful beautiful night sky and sort of focusing on that and all the bad things would go away. I hate to ask, but what was, your, what was your lowest memory of it? I do remember one moment in particular having a good old cry. A friend of mine, he had borrowed my camera and he'd broken the lens. Everything's very precious in Antarctica you can't get a new one, you know. It's not like you can just get it on Amazon and, and, and you're all good. I remember that, yeah, that moment really vividly, you know. I was like, you know, I thought the world was going to end. And then you have a cup of tea, and, and suddenly everything seems all right again. Small things can get on top of you as well. I, I remember us having like this team meeting because we were going to run out of paper napkins, you know. <laughs> I mean, and everyone gets in a you know, toilet roll know, crisis. I know, imagine. imagine like everyone gets in quite a state about these things, you know. <laughs> the smallest things can get totally on top of you. We've all been there, you know, when someone's like tapping on a, on a counter or doing something which drives you crazy. And and it's really the smallest of things. And the person probably doesn't even know that it's irritating you as well. And if you're going to be self-isolating with somebody, it's about communicating with people about what winds you up. And, and also another big thing that we learned during the human behavior training was it was also about learning about who it is that you're isolating with and how they're likely to react in different situations. If there's somebody that when they get upset, they get really angry and and loud, or other people might actually go really quiet. So if I get upset, I find it really hard to talk, actually. (laughs) And it's just being aware of how people might be reacting and and to to be there for them. It's going to be a challenging period for for a lot of people, and, and the more that we can do to help each other get through it, the better, really. When we were flying back to the coast, I remember seeing the sea for the first time for 12 months. I actually felt quite emotional. And then I drove back to Concordia as if I hadn't have had enough of it already. As part of a large convoy to resupply the station. I was driving one of these big caterpillar tractors. I spent 12 days um, just driving on my own, actually. It was an opportunity to really think and and really just enjoy that adventure going back to Concordia to say goodbye to it for, for one last time as well.
0: It's so rare to hear what it's really like in complete isolation. And it's so apt.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a funny thing, isn't it? That it, that it has become relevant to our, to our day-to-day life, really. <laughs> I never really thought that I would be in isolation again. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's funny that it's suddenly become relevant to, to all of our lives.
0: Beth Healy is now a British A&D doctor in the Alps, on the border between France, Italy and Switzerland, where she suddenly found herself on the front line of the battle against coronavirus. It's made her think back to her experience.
1: Just before we went into governmental lockdown, I, I was suddenly, you know, just organising my things, and it suddenly just reminded me very much so of, of Antarctica and when I that feeling just before we went into isolation. Have
0: you been giving friends tips on how to survive it?
1: I mean, everyone does ask that question. You know, is there somebody that's that's good at isolating? And and I think I think the real answer is no. <laughs> I think I think all of us need help. to to be effective when when we're isolating.
0: And in in between isolating, you are carrying on as a doctor and you are sort of seeing coronavirus on the front line.
1: What's that been like? Because I am in the Alps and we are right on the border of Italy and, and very close to the area where it was... More heavily infected is that we are seeing greater rates of coronavirus currently within these areas because we've just been affected a little bit more quickly. You know, it was probably about ten days ahead, I would say, from the current crisis in the UK. It all seemed like a very long way away, and then within a few days, you know, it was in Italy, which has just crossed the border to us. And I I guess it's the rate at which it's changed not only our, our way of living, but also the emergency department that I work in. Leaving work this morning, you know, there's a big army tent outside the hospital. When I go out in the response car, everyone has to assume that you're going to a corona patient, so you're having to get into full protective gear, not knowing um, necessarily whether patients have or don't have coronavirus. And of course, there's a lot of anxiety as well for patients coming in. And that's the other worry as well, is that people aren't going to be coming into emergency departments when they should be.
0: Really? And is that making their condition worse by the time they do, actually? Make it in.
1: Yeah, that's it. And and there is, you know, there is that extra risk as well when you are unwell. So it's it's a very difficult situation to manage. And are you comparing notes with with friends who are doctors in the UK? The main message is that that it has arrived. So even just a week ago, you know, I felt very much that it was something that we had that wasn't really in the UK yet, but everyone was preparing for. But now, you know. I, t- I text or speak to my friends and, and they've all been seeing covid cases as well and every day now so it's definitely something that's arriving and it's sort of arriving as quickly as it it did for us and
0: when you are talking to them i mean what do they say about how how the nhs is coping with with what's coming
1: well, I think it's been very positive, you know, the public attitude and support for the, the whole healthcare system has been overwhelming, and I think people are really appreciative of that. It makes us feel that, you know, we're not just <laughs> doing this alone, you know, everyone feels that everybody's in it and everybody's doing their bit, and I think also seeing, you know, everyone self-isolating and following those rules as well, it's also a sense sort of respect, really, for the people on the front line. So I think everyone feels a, a big sense of community and, and very well supported I love the NHS during this period it would be nice as well to be going back to the NHS so I'm I'm having a look at to see how that might be possible really because you know you do feel like you want to be at home and close to family and also close to Bristol and, and to where I trained And having
0: seen the crisis about 10 days on in Switzerland, where you are, and hearing
1: how things are going here, are you scared about what's coming? Um, I mean, I, I, you know, yes, yes, I am. I, I'm scared because of my grandparents and because of the elderly population. And, and I mean, it doesn't just affect elderly populations, but, you know, that, that's the thing that obviously I, I keep in mind. I think it is a scary sort of unsettling time for everybody.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Dr. Beth Healy. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Leo Hornack. And the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicholas Rawfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. You can also subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. In these uncertain times, if you want more information about coronavirus, And you can always access expert analysis on the latest developments with The Times' dedicated daily newsletter. You can sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk slash coronavirus. See you tomorrow.